You're listening to the 15th episode of Season 3 of the Wicked Podcast. I'm Mike Moore. This podcast is about strict, rules-focused Christianity not working even a little bit. But it's not an attack on faith. It's about trying to maintain some connection to God, despite anything anybody might say. It's also about depression, words, and music. Each episode is me pontificating and ruminating around a song from my concept album, Death in Tiny Spoonfuls. Episode 15, The Talking Dead. This second last song is the closing bracket to the second song on the album, which was about alcoholism. This one is about reaching the point where being at church, moving around in Christian community, had come to feel like being shut away in a dimly lit room all week long with a bunch of very bitey zombies. Part of the idea of this album was taking what I grew up with, the stuff that was all I knew, and imagining what it would be like for a random, more normal person than we brethren folk to suddenly find himself in the middle of it. Oh, worldly people don't understand, was drilled into me, but I was starting to learn back then that all too often, worldly people saw through all the ways we were deluding ourselves, allowing them to cut straight to the unvarnished truth, not about everything, but back in the day, Curry said more than one thing that was right on, and which I would never have arrived at myself, mostly due to my foot-thick indoctrination. Much was done to keep us and the epiphanies which pursued us apart. The feeling in the song is of being normal and completely unzombie-like, something I certainly did not know from personal experience, and fearing getting bitten or scratched in that room and turning into a church zombie myself. Of course, what was really happening was I was trying to wake up from all of that, be more alive than that, heal from that, resurrect from it, the Christian hope of life out of death. In the lyrics, the kinds of personal, passive-aggressive, snide character attacks I'd found were all too common there aren't presented as the main danger. The final verse deals with horror movies, zombies attacking kind of imagery, but the rest of it is about the fact that these zombies are the talking dead. The main danger is their incessant speaking without saying anything real or alive. The ritualistic, mind-deadening preaching. All designed to convince you to lie down and be still and stay with them always in an unlit, stuffy place of spiritual death. Sherry listened in meeting about half the time, she says. The meeting was especially easy for me to just detach because I wasn't allowed to speak. And I'm so, so jealous. I couldn't zone out. I listened to every word, and I feel like that's some kind of private hell. Would you say that in all yeah. the church time that you've put in, that a fair bit of it you weren't really paying attention? I would say probably half the time, but up until... When I start, when I decided that I was going to pay attention, I was very serious about it. And you have to remember too that because it wasn't something that was continuously crammed down my throat, a lot of it was new to me, and so it wasn't boring yet. But certainly by the time I got, you know, ten years later, after having been to dozens of conferences and having heard most of the stuff, and no longer feeling the needing to write notes because I'd heard it before. Um, and it wasn't new and amazing, uh, then I started feeling like a little bit more head zone out. Or, Are you suggesting that they repeat themselves and run out of material eventually? Yeah. 
like, can you remember some of the last few experiences of going to a Bible conference and trying to remain engaged with it? Yes, because it was after I had kids and I felt utterly pointless. I was like, why am I here? I'm paying more attention to my kids and I'd zone in for maybe like 10 minutes of each meeting or whatever. Mostly I was just wishing I had, I could be anywhere else. Was there a bit of a feeling that the whole thing lulls you to sleep? Like it's not, it's hard to listen because it's not meant to be. Especially if you're tired, like that, that was one thing. So, you know, the first day or day and a half of a conference, it's more or less easier to pay attention. But by the last day, you've been up, you know, all hours doing actual fun stuff and having actual good conversations with people. And so the next day when you're listening to somebody, or especially in a reading meeting, them droning on and on the same five voices, that very much puts you to sleep, the longer the meeting is, especially. So at uh, there was a, a conference in the Asheville Conference. I guess they had it in Lake Demuska. For some reason, there was, on I don't know if it was Sunday or Saturday, but there was this one meeting, or I don't know if it was two meetings that were like back-to-back. It was an hour and 45 minutes. It was entirely too long. I didn't understand why they did <laughs> The voice kind of fades out, and then it comes back, and then it fades out again, and you find your head nodding, and you try so hard to stay awake. Chris designed imaginary hovercrafts in his mind. So jealous. See, when I was little, that was the best time for me, because I could dream and be like, I could build a hovercraft and fly, and it'd be amazing, and I could get to school in like five minutes, and people would be in awe of me. So you're supposed to be listening to someone tell you what doom is prophesied <laughs> upon the Galatians, and you're building hovercrafts. Like, shame on you, sir. But Depending on who spoke, I enjoyed listening to it, or I really didn't, and I absolutely tuned them out. It got more and more along the lines of this feels very culty. Why are all these women dressed in dresses when they don't dress this way? Why does it feel so strange, not like a normal life? And just like looking at it back at it now, do you feel like brainwashing was happening or they're trying to do it? I'm not sure. Still under the influence. You might, you might be too brainwashed to know if it was brainwashed because I once had an atheist say, he's like, are you a Christian? And I said, yes. And he said, where do you go to church? And I said, I don't go to church. And he said, well, how can you be a Christian? Like if you don't go to church and they didn't want to say, and I said, if I don't go to church, the brainwashing will wear, wear off. And he laughed. He's like, I didn't want to say it, but that, that's basically it. So what do you think about that idea that you need to go to church to make the brainwashing work? Do you think you could maintain a faith in God without needing to be indoctrinated weekly? I'm very easily influenced by the people around me. So the past year and the time over the pandemic has definitely made me, I haven't gone to church in a long time. Um, but you, you have, like you were list, you're listening to a podcast about the Bible and this kind of thing a little bit. Do you find that right. that's... Does that feel the same or not the same? I'm I'm not sure. I don't know. Um, do you find that sometimes it reaffirms your faith and other times it really stretches it too far for you? Yeah, sometimes it's reaffirming. Other times I'm just like, I'm listening to this podcast um, because I can't figure it out whether my faith is real. And so this sort of helps me, gives me something to listen to as well as make me not have to think about my faith and question it. Michael Vetter grew up the same way we did. I, my handicap was that I, I not that I, I remembered everything that was said in meeting, but that I would listen without 
because I so wanted it to be, you know, what they said it was, you know, the perfect words of, of you know, people speaking in the spirit and all that, that I, I would listen without any filter of reality. Like, it'd be like, wait a minute. He just said two things that were completely the opposite, you know? And so I was, I was always like, okay, I, you know, keep, keep giving them rope. They're going to say the right thing. Yeah. Um, and I think I was that way. I knew a guy who, uh, you know, came in from outside and he eventually married someone raised brethren. And what he noticed is he listened to the endless Bible discussions and reading meetings and sermons, um, with an outsider's perspective. And he was going to university. So he, he knew about studying literature too. And what he found was that his wife never noticed when people said things that disagreed with each other or with their own internal logic. So people would be talking away and say something and then say the very opposite. And she had what you're, I think what you're describing is that she wouldn't even notice. And that when uh, people disagreed with each other, did you ever notice that someone would say something and someone else would say something that completely contradicted it? And there was no knowledge or awareness shown that they were saying things that didn't agree. They're acting like they were agreeing. Yes. They're yes. just like and saying I, stuff. I think a lot of that, from having been somebody that would speak up in the meetings, I think a lot of it um, comes from the, the uh, emotional, uh, adrenaline rush and excitement that comes of being about to speak and have this thing to say and then you say it and the, the feeling of ah i said something mm-hmm. and then you don't even listen to what anybody you hadn't been listening to what other people are saying and you can't after that listen to what they were saying um only for clues as to what you might say next there's things that are very hard to convey to people who weren't raised in the meeting and one of them is people are used to there's a pastor and the pastor probably went to bible school and got educated about things and then he prepares a sermon and then he shows up and he says the sermon and he has to have about 30, 40 minutes of material a week. Whereas what we had was seemingly ceaseless talking that was entirely off the cuff with no Bible training and no prep work, just talking, just trying to think of stuff to say, and it's all improv. So I think that kind of explains what you're saying a little bit. Would you agree with that? Continual need to fill yeah. the time. But not the things that were being said, not necessarily um, anything, but more than just to fill the time. So not, one of, not deep conviction. And a typical Bible study was going through the King James and paraphrasing it. Yeah. To me, that's not really thinking about what it says so much as you're just still parsing what the words mean. And you're not sort of taking it beyond like, it's like, uh, I don't know, for me, it would be like if you got an instruction manual and you went through and you went through the whole thing and colored in all the holes and the O's and so that you spent some time over the instruction sheet, but you didn't go and do anything that it said or figure out what it wanted you to think. You just kind of played with it. Yeah. Yeah. I think I started to wake up to that by the time I was 19 or 18 and 19. And oh, it was at the time I was dating the fiery curly redhead. I was starting to wake up in the middle of that, which was really weird because I was at that time trying to be as holy as possible. But I, I started noticing that people were getting up and they were like, um, 
Well, what we really need to do is talk about the Lord. We need to talk about the Lord 100% of the time and not talk about anything else. And and it sounds really good. And then I would be like, but they're not talking about the Lord. They're, all they're doing is talking about talking about the Lord. And they never would talk about the Lord. Yeah. I was like, well, if we're going to be talking about the Lord, maybe we should talk about him. Yeah, that that was my, my first wake up. And then I would start pointing that out every time I saw it. And it, it seemed to happen continuously once I noticed it. And I was like, oh. There's a lot of analogs like, um, you know, we were raised to sneer at contemporary church worship and practice. And it's very hard not to be like that. But, you know, we're trained to sneer at the fact that they say they're singing about Jesus. But if you look at the words, they're singing about singing about Jesus and singing about their feelings about singing about singing about Jesus. Our equivalent was talking about talking about Jesus and talking about talking about reading the Bible. And the levels of abstraction made it not work, not a real thing. Right. Well, you remember people coming up to you after meeting and say, isn't it so nice to talk about the Lord's thing? And, but they wouldn't. No. But, you know, that if, and they try and lay it on you as if it's guilty. If you're, you're supposed to feel guilty if you don't, if you don't answer back and, and in the same kind of, it was, it was a, 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 a meeting speak. It was a, cer- a certain yeah. way of putting on a smarm. Like we used to call it smarm. And after Ghostbusters came out, I think, one of your brothers called it getting slimed, which I thought was quite expressive. <laughs> but yeah, someone comes up to you yeah, and so. says, you know, wasn't that lovely? Especially if there's a particularly vacuous um, Bible discussion where very little happened in it or was said. And they would say, well, isn't it wonderful that we can gather like this? And it's taken me a long time to realize how much of that was just sort of a shared tribalism, just a feeling of we we came to this room and we're all here now. Look at us. And there was an yeah. awful lot of sneaky saying, and look at those other people who aren't here. They're somewhere else. Not as good as being here when they're not here. There are other people who are in other places. And that's pretty self-centered. Kim grew up that way, too, with the added tedium of the main speaker being her father, with whose shtick she was overly familiar. To me, that seems like zombies now. When I look back. Mm-hmm. That's the opposite. Do you remember sitting in a meeting and it's just taking forever? Oh, Constantly. I've never been, I've, I've never experienced boredom. Like I experienced, especially listening to like my dad just say the same shit over and over and over in every city. You know, he'd say mm-hmm. the same thing every time you have to listen to it. You're like, Oh my God. You could almost like mouth yep. the words along to oh, yeah. him. You'd be like, get us out of here. Like, ah, oh, man. And I think in a lot of churches, there would be the expectation that if my dad or your dad or anybody was going to preach, that you would have been to Bible college and that you would have been trained. And there would be this Absolutely. expectation that you had some specific topic that you hadn't spoken on before. And that for 40 minutes, you would speak about that topic and that you would be trying to educate yeah. people. And my theory is that we were going out to meeting not to be educated. We were going out to like show that we were doing the right thing. And so I think all the right. talking was just to fill the time. Yeah, fill the time and just like a weird reinforcement you know, of like the few key things they wanted to like. Like being the only right place. Yeah, exactly. Oh my God. Cause like you never, you never really got these big talking to's about like no one wanted to talk about anything uncomfortable. Like even if they felt like, oh, people shouldn't drink. It's not like anyone was getting up having like these big sermons about how awful alcohol was really. It was like, it was all this like roundabout like way of saying things you know, and then maybe someone would take you aside in private and be like, well, this is why you shouldn't do this and this and this. Like, that was more my experience. But 
I don't know. I just took the flip side of it all. You know, I, I wrote a song. It's called Satan Does the Numbers. And it is, I was in a hotel room on tour and I took the fucking like Bible out of the hotel drawer and it had like the little index. And I just looked up all the verses about wine and money. And I just wrote a song, but like flipped the verses so that it was just like fun and just like made it fun. The love of money is the root of all evil. Sounds that now because I know the story. I love knowing the story. I watch endless documentaries, any documentaries or YouTube content that tells me where songs and bands and albums come from. I'm all over that. And so, yeah, I've listened to so much of that stuff. I love it. And the weird idea for the podcast is my songs, not only were they not successful, they mostly weren't even recorded. And so it's like, now I'll take the song that is so unsuccessful. It wasn't ever really properly recorded and I'll slap something together and I'll tell you the story, just like I'm the Rolling Stones. And I'll tell you the story of where I can't get no satisfaction came from. And it's That's not the Stones. Cool. It takes on a life of its own, though, in a different way. It's like a cool. Some people want to hear about the Christianity stuff. And some people want to hear about the depression stuff. And some people want to hear about the music stuff. And I don't think many people want to hear about all three. And so I think people skip around. And it's that's interesting to me. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah. But um, I'm really jealous of all the chances you've had to collaborate with other people and work together because in my experience being in a band's like a, ma a marriage and it's like they just do not last like people fight yeah. and are stupid and well, that's that's it my band just decides to keep going yeah <laughs> it's not always healthy it's been through some changes yeah it's been through a lot of changes yeah i mean it's been the best of times it's been the worst of times that's for sure you know Listen to you and, quoting uh, charles dickens over there but like yeah you know we've had some hard times you know there's been you know a lot of hard times with drugs and alcohol and mental health and all kinds of things you know you name it we've we've done it we've been through it we've had you know bad labels when I talk to women, they normally talk about healing. And I, I don't know if that's a thing for you. Did you feel that there was trauma and you had to heal from it? Or is that not kind of how you think about it? Like I said, I think I just disassociated for so many years that when, you know, I kind of had my own life and I was on my feet. And I think it was like, all it's almost hard for me to get back there. And I, I, I find like I actually don't have a lot of memories. Mm-hmm of being like a kid, you know, I have, I have some good memories and, you know, some really bad memories, like kind of extreme things mm -hmm. I can remember. Um, but like a lot, I have quite big gaps, I think. That's uh, not surprising. Memory. There's somebody that's a psychiatrist who was raised in like, I'm sure you're aware that in the Plymouth Brethren, there's like a much more culty wing of it. Yes. Did yeah. you know that? We said the Ravens, but that's actually the tip of the iceberg. It gets a lot worse. And right now it's the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church is a worldwide organization with a single man of God who runs everyone's money and all that stuff. 
I've been, I've been talking yeah. to a guy who was raised in that, but, um, Jill Mitten was raised in the culty brethren and rebelled yeah. as a woman by becoming a psychiatrist, which is a pretty okay. great way to rebel against being brethren yeah. is if you're a woman is to be a psychiatrist. And that's what she did. And she just sort of casually told me on Facebook what she thinks are the two most common traits for people raised like us. Mm-hmm. And the two traits are that people raised like us normally struggle to remember our pasts and have trouble connecting to people and forming lasting relationships with them. Yeah. I absolutely deny the first one. I like remember almost everything in excruciating detail, which is not always fun at all, but I have it. And so that's why I'm working out in songs and reminiscences and all that, but I'm, I've been stuck with it when it comes to forming lasting human relationships. Yeah. I totally get that, that I don't know how to make connections. I'm sort of assuming that people are going to get sick of me and you know, you can make that happen. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like that's what worked for you. That you were able to make the human connections, but you don't have the memories. Yeah, but I mean, at, at the same time, though, it's something that, like, now I'm getting a bit older, I do really struggle with trying to, like, remember things. And, you know, I feel like because I got so used to disassociating that I also just naturally started doing that through, you know, even the good parts of my life. And then, you know, it was just like a habit where I just, like, didn't remember anything. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm trying just like a thing that I've been constantly trying to break, you know, trying to like be able to not just be present and live in the moment, which I think I'm really good at, but also just like banking that and, and having the memories and kind of like, yeah, I'm, I, I'm all turned around. <laughs> I, I don't think I'm, I'm generally a very happy person. And what everyone who knows has told me is that the secret to happiness is what you just said is like living in the moment that that seems to be what works for people. And you're not supposed to dwell on the past, but then there's this like balance that you sort of need to deal with the past. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, that, yeah, that's kind of it. It's like when things do kind of come up or, you know, there's, you know, situations where you, you're forced to confront it. Yeah. It, it is really weird because I do feel like I'm in a bit of like a no man's land mm-hmm. when it comes to unpacking all that stuff. Like my sister and I, we're only four years apart, but like we never got along. We've always been the opposites yeah. and we, we, we seldom have gotten along, but we had opposite ways of dealing. And so her way of dealing with the meeting was to ignore all of it and not think about it and to joke about it. And my way of dealing right. with it was to confront it and try and talk it out and try and argue about it, which right. you can imagine how well that went over. I tried that a couple times myself. Yeah. <laughs> because I, I, I tell people that um, as a child, um, I was beaten with a wooden paddle with a Bible verse written on each side of it. And I was saying this is not necessarily the best way to make your kids love the Bible. You shouldn't beat them with it probably as no. job one. <laughs> but um, what I found was part of what you were saying before. This is the thing that I think is creepy and hard to explain about cultures like ours. There wasn't a plaque on the wall with all the expectations and the rules. You just had to know. And often you did. And you didn't know how you knew. Like, how did you know that all these things were expected? No one really said, but you just learned. And the part that I think is particularly creepy about it, uh, which somebody who was in a full-on cult uh, told me, is the old people don't know how to deal with the new things in the world. So like the internet was new and all the things that were new. So they had to train you to self-generate the rules, and you did. Right, interesting. To me, that's creepy that you can do that, that you can sort of pretend to be the old people, figure out what would offend them, and know what they want, and do it, and no one needs to tell you. And you're like 21. 
Interesting. And, and you just know what people are not going to like. You just know what yeah. they will like. That you just they they make known to you how you're supposed to be as a person in the world. Because I've really been exploring the idea that for me, I, I'm a words person. Like I'm an English teacher. I talk incessantly. Words. That's me. And yeah. they wouldn't give me what I needed as a kid. They wouldn't put into words what they wanted. And when they're angry, they wouldn't put in words why or what they wanted. Yeah. None of they wouldn't do that. Uh, and I don't know if you're as much a verbal person as me, but do you kind of relate to that idea that so much was unsaid all the time in the meeting? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I definitely remember being very upset about things and just saying, like, why, why, you mm-hmm. know, and just being like, well, it's just that's like there's no answer. You know, it's just the way it is. But like, how can you you're a kid? Kids want things explained, you know, yes. like. Why do we have to do this? Why can't I go there? Like, why is this happening to me? Like, why can't I do this thing I want to do? And there's no real expi- explanation. Like, that was my whole life. Yeah. It's not Nothing was explained away, you know? It was just like, no. My sister Debbie agrees that we children sitting perfectly expressionless and still for an hour five times a week at something that was less dynamic than a staff meeting at a paper bag factory was a performance required if our dad was going to teach and preach there at all. Yeah, I I think I remember one of the women um, saying to mom that she didn't know what they did, but like we, uh, us kids were basically perfect. The way we sat in meeting, Mm -hmm. we were perfect and she couldn't, like her kids couldn't live up to that. And she was basically kind of like, you know, what the, what the heck do you do? And I laugh. Yeah, I laugh when I think about it because I was like, yeah, you just make sure that they are going to be beaten if they don't. And 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 I remember that being very much a pressure when we were sitting in meeting that dad was on at that point. He was on in his role as a as a leading brother or vying for that. And he had very much told us, communicated to us that if we in any way um, acted improperly i.e. embarrassed him or shamed him that um he wouldn't be able to speak he wouldn't be able to um lead in that way because his home was out of order remember that he would say his if my home is out of order then i can't speak so in order to get it back he would yeah beatings were a thing that's you know with me where i wasn't able to go back home before thursday night meeting and so i was still wearing my jeans from school and to dad, uh, jeans weren't an appropriate costume to wear out to meeting. So when I was sitting next to him with my jeans, he refused to do his usual teaching and was silent the whole time because his family wasn't in order because his son was wearing jeans. So I was maybe 12 or 13, and I was overwhelmed by the feeling that I had changed the entire direction of the meeting and, and what was taught and what the Holy Spirit would have done there by my pants it's a performance that that it's not you're you're not making decisions and you're not kept from certain life decisions for your own reasons it's for how it looks yeah exactly so i guess you live that way and when you're 17 you got to stop making decisions based on how it would look to other people yeah i mean i think i just you know obviously i was a child i needed to have a roof over my head i needed Legally, I had to stay in my parents' house until I 
could could not like my mom was quite I'd go and I'd like stay at friends houses and I'd be like yeah I'm not I'm out of here and she would just like come and like get me and like mull mm-hmm. around or like get someone else from the meeting to go and like talk to me and try and like you know send me back or like I was pulling all this weird shit you know because like there was a lot of meeting people in the area yeah. and you know I had friends who you know, everyone was kind of really intertwined. Even if you weren't a meeting person, you went to another church, you knew all the same people. Like it was very sort of mixed bag of things going on. And it, so it was, it was close knit. So there was no like really escaping it, you know? And I, no. I kind of remember like, all right, I just got to like, you know, once I get my high school diploma, like mm-hmm. that's all I need. You know, I, I, you know, worked, I worked and I worked and I worked, worked at my little gas station job. You know, since I was 13 and I had a little bank account full of money, you know, the most money I ever had, really. And I was just like, I'm out. Like, I got what I needed from this. I cannot stay here and try and, like, navigate whatever is going on here. I I didn't even know myself or anything about myself. I just knew that, like... It wasn't working. Couldn't I just couldn't imagine being so unhappy. Like, the people who were taking this the most seriously... You know, were my mother and father, and they were so unhappy, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, Listening to Kim being so brutally honest about the kind of family life that so many children of public church figures have shared with me in the past was a bit jarring. So my poor mother was just so depressed, and my dad was just so, like, emotionally abusive to her and, you know, and more. But, like, mostly, you know just so it was just so bad I was like I can't if no one else wants to change for themselves you know like if my mom won't leave him mm-hmm. you know if that's something she's not going to do I can't stay here and like watch this unfold right and I just tried to make sure to call and talk to my sister on the phone once in a while and that was it that was it I was like I'm not going to just sit here and watch this in unravel into god knows what and once again like i don't i don't envy your home life either but you know with me it was an extra 10 years there that i right up to 27 i was trying to make the meeting work and it didn't make sense it didn't make sense from when i was 17 it didn't make sense but i was somehow trying to negotiate with it somehow trying to make it work and they got rid of me when i was 27 against my will it's a weird the weirdest thing that i didn't walk away I, di- I didn't believe that I should. I believed that I had to somehow find a way to connect to them or, or whatever. And they didn't want that. And I guess what I learned as a kid really spilled over to the meeting. That when I was a kid with my particular dad, the rules were not spoken and no one would admit to them. If you broke them, you got punished anyway. Right. And if you questioned them, you got punished twice as hard. My sister broke the rules and tried not to get caught. And that worked yeah. pretty well. And if she got caught, it was like, well, you know, that's the game, right? Like you tried not to get caught and we caught you and we don't blame you for wanting to break the rules because you're a kid. Of course you want to break the rules, but we did catch you. So now we have to punish you a little bit just for the the look of it. Whereas me, they'd say, here's the rule. You can't do the things that you want to do. You can't be who you are. And I would basically say, okay, well, explain this to me. And they'd say, no. (laughs) And I would say, if you want me to not be myself, explain to me. You know, and they, what I quickly realized is they hadn't even thought about it. They had, they had no idea 
any of it. And they, and they, they don't intend to think about it and they don't believe in thinking about things. Did you find there was a real anti-intellectual thing that pe- no one believed that the truth would set you free and no one believed that dealing would help and no one believed in thinking and talking in that circle? Yeah, I would say in the circle as a whole, 100%. My mom was very much like indoctrinated to have that sort of mindset where she was like, well, this is, you know, this is what I believe, mm-hmm. you know? And I feel like as time went on, it was almost like if she didn't keep it up, it's like, well, then what is, why had she been doing this the whole time? Like my mom almost had to keep the charade up for herself because right. like if she finally admitted to herself that any of this was kind of bullshit, it's like she would have had to face the fact that her whole life was a sham, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think she just can't, like for her own mental health, she's got to stay a bit in that mind space. Natalie's dad was a successful leader in their Mormon church. My brother fell off way before I did. And uh, my dad served as a bishop and everywhere we lived, we moved a few times Mm -hmm. and he always ended up as bishop of our branch. So he obviously didn't said the right things to get there. And they always said, you know, you know, God has told us that you are the one (laughs) who's been chosen. Was that popularity or hardworking nature? Or what do you think made him win at that game when my dad didn't? I think it was that he was just friendly and observant and wise and could talk to people. The role of being a bishop um, in any branch was to guide people, to lead. And I guess, you know, he was very good at that. That makes sense. Because my dad was just hardcore. So he's mm-hmm. fanatical and he didn't have the people skills. So that right. didn't work for him. I think Jehovah's Witnesses are taught that if they don't go door to door, and preach that they may not be redeemed or may not reach the afterlife. Mm-hmm. Is that part of the Mormon faith as well? Not specifically, but it certainly encouraged uh, the men more so than the women mm-hmm. to go forth in the world and spread the word and to get them while they're young and excited about it. And, and you yourself did a bit of that, you said. Uh, well, I went with the missionaries, but mostly because I had a crush on one of them, I think. Oh, dear. Um, yeah. A prophet not being without honor, save in his own country. Around here, nobody much thought Kim's father was much good as a speaker, teacher, or preacher at all. He came off as a pale, transparent imitation of the Hayhoes, who'd at least been the real deal in some way and meant what they said, as far as we could tell. With Kim's dad, something rang very false. We found him an annoying public speaker with an annoyingly shrill voice. And decades before Jordan Peterson knew what the Internet was, we all thought Kim's dad sounded beloved brethren like Kermit the Frog reading the Word of God. We nasty little kids had heavily rehearsed imitations of all of the big brethren's speakers, most of whom are dead now. If they had an odd vocal tick, we would imitate it. We had to listen to him after all. I will say this. I think my dad was full of shit. I don't even know what he believed. I never saw him care. Like, he wasn't someone who was really, you know, he wasn't sitting at home praying to God or crying to God over his children or any of that shit or anyone else. Like, he was doing a job. He was saying the right things. He was good at talking. He's a great public speaker. He knew what people wanted to hear. 
He knew what stories to tell, how to alter them, how to fit them in. I don't think he went home and felt like the weight of the Lord on his chest, like every night about what he should do for the world. Maybe at the start, I don't know, but definitely not, definitely not when I was a teenager. I wonder how many people there were and are like that. I don't know. Because my dad believes, like my dad believes, believes, believes. And some people do and some people don't. And and I don't think it's in anyone's interest to like out themselves if they don't really believe. But yeah, I I never really got that. And um, can I be a bit harsh about your dad? Is that all right? Yeah, please. My God. Okay. Um, So I got to see the rise of him because when I was a little kid, it was all Albert Hayhoe's assembly. I was brought up to know nothing else, nothing else, in all my life, in all my life, I've never sat down in a church and heard a sermon. Have I missed something? Beloved, I stand here to say by the matchless grace of God that I thank him for ever picking me up and redeeming my unworthy soul, but oh, how I thank him for the joy of being gathered to his precious name. Albert and Smith Falls, and you had Gordon and Charles and their sister Ruth Smith in Ottawa. Leprosy was a very loathsome, horrible disease, and we see how the leper was cleansed. But leprosy is nothing compared with the horrible disease of sin. It's 10,000 times worse than leprosy, because a man might have leprosy and go to heaven. And they, they had it all locked up. They were the second generation, and they also had BTP with, like, Grace Rule was, like, the daughter of Albert Hay. Like they had the whole thing. It was a hey ho only show. And the Allens were an attempt to be a different family. And they eventually had a division because the Allens and the hey ho's couldn't see eye to eye. But when your dad started preaching, Albert Hayho had just died in Smith's Falls. And it looked very much to people like me, like he was trying to just be the next one. Just kind of slide in. Interesting. And And he sounded like him. He sounded very like him. He told the same stories. He, and so he learned at the feet of, feet of there. They're very different men. But let me tell you a little story. I have the privilege, as was mentioned, of going down to the Caribbean. And they give me tremendous opportunities in the schools there to preach the gospel. And I have a friend and a brother in Christ who travels with me, a missionary friend. He's from St. Vincent. That's an island just north of Grenada. Just off the, uh, just out from off from Barbados. Although I'm still a pretty locked down, monotone, you know, stone faced person, I'm still very much that. So like going up on stage and trying to get a response that I was singing and that wasn't working. So you start singing louder and you start performing harder. How much do you think that your current personality was shaped by the fact that you were trying to get people's, you know, eye, eye contact in concert? That's such an interesting, like layered question to me, because mm-hmm. I think that I got a lot of my personality genetically, like nature, if we're going to talk the nature side of it, from my father. Mm-hmm. 
but I, I hated him, you know, and I didn't want to be anything like him. And, you know, I thought he was a phony and I, I thought he was an asshole and I didn't want to be him, you know? And as I got older, I realized that I, not from any nurturing on his part, but simply from genetics, I was quite a bit like him. I'm, you know, I have a loud voice. I'm a performer. Um, I crave attention and the stage and, you know, I realized that's all, that's all he wanted too. You know, he wanted to be famous and he wanted to be recognized and, you know. And they give me tremendous opportunities in the schools there to preach the gospel. He wanted to make music and he wanted to paint and make art. It's like this pastor missionary thing he did was a way for him to like be on the stage and be kind of like famous in his own right and have all these things, all this sort of, you know, people, people loved him and they doted over him and that that's what he wanted. And, you know, that, that personality trait is the same thing that I have. And, you know, obviously I, I love being on the stage. I love having that sort of attention put on me. I love performing. It's, it's in me and it's, something that I struggled with, you know, just like I, I had to really like sort of work through the fact that like, just because we have these similar traits doesn't mean, you know, that I'm the same as him. And I think I had to separate myself from that because it really felt like I acted when I was, you know, younger, I, I definitely acted like an asshole and I acted out a lot. And I think that I had to say, you know what, that's not who I am. I'm not, I'm not going to be like him, you know, I'm not going to like, I'm going to try really hard not to be like a f***ing jerk for the rest of my life. And I had to, I had to separate those aspects, you know, because I was just like, well, there you go. I'm just f***ing Jim. You know what I mean? I'm just doing it in a different way. Have you ever seen this happen? Have you ever seen... In a day of departure and ruin and confusion as we have in Christendom today... Some of you know I've had some experiences that have made me realize that we need to live uprightly before God because things may be some brought publicly, things may be splashed in the press. Do you know what I mean? Like sometimes when they're preaching, it sounds fake. Yep. The voices go up yep. and down and up and down. It's they're trying to hypnotize kind of. Yep. Oh, it's yeah, it's definitely an art, you know, in a, in a sense. It's so interesting that you kind of have all these archives and you know, it, obviously it's probably not healthy. The rudest thing I was going to say about your dad, because I was going to be rude about him. I didn't hate your dad. But when all of this started, what it seemed like to us, like I was alive in 1977. I was seven in 1977. And, yeah. and two things happened. Star Wars came out and I wasn't allowed <laughs> to watch it because I was not allowed to go to the movie theater. Yeah. And, and Elvis died. Good evening. Elvis Presley died today. He was 42. Apparently, it was a heart attack. And when Elvis died, my mother, despite having been a brethren woman for so long, was really upset because she remembered being a teenage girl and she remembered Elvis Presley. And I could just sort of sense that Elvis was a thing. And then what happened after Elvis Presley died is Elvis impersonators cropped up everywhere. All of these people were dressing as Elvis and being Elvis. And so when your dad started speaking and I heard hey-ho stuff coming out. Yeah. It's a thrill to our souls to do that. And it's a thrill to our souls when we hear of another one 
who comes to know Christ as their Savior. I was like, he's like an Elvis impersonator, but of hey-hos. That's really interesting. I mean, that makes sense. It's like, I I was, you know, quite young when when that happened, probably like five, you know? And so I don't know. I don't know what was going on before that. Like, I had no idea what any of it was about. And, like, my parents never talked to me about the past of, like, the brother no or where it came from or, like, what had transpired before. They never talked to me about the divisions. I'd know when they happened and, you know, people would be upset and people would be gone and blah, blah, blah. But no one ever talked to me about mm-hmm. that stuff. I was kept very in the dark. I didn't know where any of it had come from. And I guess I guess I never bothered to ask, or maybe if I did, I... I think it's very messed up, and I think it reveals a lot. Like, I think a lot of it shows what people really are willing to walk, like what they really, really believe. Ruth feels that my staff meeting analogy was apt. It, it almost was like a staff meeting, you know, especially after a division. Most of the meetings, instead of being like Bible studies, instead of taking a passage in the Bible and talking about it and figuring out how it might apply to us, a lot of the meetings were about telling us, why we met the way we did and why we worshiped the way we did and congratulating ourselves. That could almost be like a staff meeting kind of a thing, yeah. couldn't it? Absolutely. It's like when it's like when I worked at Nortel and we laid off all these people, then suddenly we'd have mm-hmm. this meeting and there was that somber feeling of sort of false congratulating of that we're still here. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I guess we already covered the ground of just the mind-numbing tedium of so many of these Bible conferences and meetings that we had. I can remember just, like, feeling guilty because I couldn't, like, there wasn't anything for me to, like, sink my teeth into. I'm not the smartest person in the world, but I am I seem to be a, above average. That was that was a thing to be ashamed of. When you were a woman in the Plymouth Brethren, it was a thing to be ashamed of if you had. And what are you going to do with that, that, eh? Yeah. Like if, yeah it's like it's if like you had a PhD, what are you going to do with that? You're supposed to be a mom. What are you going to do with it? Right. And, and this is so far from the actually Victorian tradition that even if you were a stay-at-home mom, if you learned how to become a classical pianist, you could teach your kids to be classical pianists. And if you knew Spanish, you teach your kids Spanish. If you knew, you, hopefully you knew Latin, so you could help your kids with that. There was a whole thing where being women of privilege meant not having to work and being incredibly educated. That used mm-hmm. to be a thing. Johan knows how to do staff meetings right. Sermons, preaching, and staff meetings, sitting politely while someone goes on and on, and we don't see the point in it. Um, I think that if I get to the point where I'm experiencing that kind of meeting, um, then either A, I have failed to do what I need to do to make sure that that kind of time isn't wasted, or B, I have no control over it. And uh, if the answer is B, I have no control over it. If I'm told, okay, well, I have to watch this slideshow on whatever because of this, um, I think that you have to let it go. It's You don't have any control over it. Why sweat something that you can't change? Um, and even if you could change it, you didn't because there you are. You're in the meeting. So you just shut up and listen. Sit politely. Take it. Um, and you you move on. Because if you got to that point where you're there, again, it's because you screwed up and you didn't make sure that these things were dealt with in advance, or it's because there's nothing you could do to deal with it in advance. And if if it's the first one, too late now. If it's the second one, too late now. It's the same thing. You don't 
There's no point in sweating the small stuff uh, like that. It's a waste of time. Yeah, if, if you can uh, minimize that waste of time by either A, participating actively and turning it from waste of time into something useful, that's great. Or B, um, finding something else to occupy your time while still listening actively, that's great. Uh, the important thing is that you do your best to minimize the experience of wasted time for everybody. So you just sit there and, and take it. It stinks, but life's like that. Those things happen. The more you can avoid them, the better, but sometimes you just can't avoid it. Melody's group was much like ours. It was the worst. It was men talking in a monotone. Um, and like you said, at some point at, when I was in college, I realized what our Bible studies are. They're exactly what you said. Men paraphrasing the King James. There is no actual discussion. They're not talking about ideas. They're literally talking about why is the preposition in this verse two versus four but they didn't know the word preposition i don't imagine yeah yeah we didn't, we didn't have we didn't have that level of scholarship in, in our group we had people who did things like talk about the significance of the word but and how that whenever the word but appears in the bible it means that there's more words are going to follow it oh yeah so yes pay attention the- to that exact phrase, yes. yes. You, ha- if there is a but, you have to pay it or a however. Right. Often and, it and was I, a however. I would be sitting there with an English degree, saying, "I know, but I'm familiar with the word." I yeah, what, like that's to... what. That's why you put it there. That's yeah. why you wrote it. But what do you and think about never... the idea that they were they were filling time? Like, what what do you think about the idea that they needed oh, to be speaking? There's they no were filling time. There was at at some point this last church I came from. We were down to 12 people, four of whom were men. We still had to have church for an hour because that was what you did. Mm-hmm. It was nothing but filling time. I think it's the most boring thing in the world. There is nothing worse than a group of people sitting around agreeing with each other, mm-hmm. whether it's politically or in a Bible study. It's the worst. Yeah. She feels the tedium came from having no real view expressed or application in any of the quote-unquote teaching. And that's part of what makes it boring there? The Bible study, that there's only going to be the one view, pretty much? Yeah, I mean, and there's not even a view. Like in the Bible study example, it's it's not a view. It's just like, oh, there. it's an observation. I guess that's right. a view. I guess yeah. that's a view. It's not an opinion, though. It's just like, oh, let me say some words to take yeah. up this time and make, you know, like I, I looked in my concordance and here are some words that the concordance says and here's five other references. But there's no opinions and there's no um, interpret. There's not a position. There's no interpretation. There's no application. Most of all, there's never an application. Like when I was going to have that Bible study. I asked someone my age what he thought of us having a Bible study because I was gauging for youth interest in a Bible study, mm-hmm. of which I found none, unless they mm-hmm. wanted to talk, in which case they wanted there to be a Bible study so they could talk at it. He didn't want to talk. And he said that he would be completely uncomfortable with a Bible study unless there was an older person there to tell us the right answers. Oh, that was never said explicitly in our group. We already knew the right answers, but that was a fear. I think that was one of the unspoken fears. Ruth agrees. There was no resolution. 
like when you hear a piece of music, the music always comes to a place of resolution. It comes on that, that final note that mm-hmm. makes the piece of music feel complete. I remember so many of the meetings, like there just not being anything that you could, that you could actually like take and write down. You get five guys from five different states all talking. Yeah. And there was never the idea that each had his own perspective and that that was welcome. They had to sort of pretend to always have seen the same thing somehow. And if there were different perspectives, it created quite a stir. I remember, I believe it was Robert Muir spoke up in one of our main conferences and said, well, we don't know for sure if we are on the right side. We don't know for sure if we really do have the Lord's mind. And it was shocking. Like, Mm -hmm. brethren took him aside after and like, brother, you can't talk like that. So if there was any discord, if there was anyone saying, hey, I don't know if what we're saying is right. That was a frightening thing. It was a big event. But it was interesting, wasn't it? It was exciting. Woke you up. That rhythm, I, I find, kind of lulled you to, into a sleep or some kind of a trance-like coma thing. Yes. That I'll never forget when I was 18, Ottawa conference at an Algonquin College campus. So we had this, what's meant to be a, a gym to have a sizable basketball, like college basketball game and stands filled with fans. And we were having a reading meeting. I was sitting yeah. up in the stands part and all the like serious people got, you know, chairs down on the court. And mm-hmm. Charlie Little, who has been in my podcast saying a couple of things. Um, I remember Charles Little. Right. He had a really good radio voice, that guy. And Yes. <laughs> you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you. And he collapsed on the floor. He was having a heart event. And the thing that killed me is that they quickly wrapped up the meeting. They closed in prayer. Like they, they didn't rush to Charlie fast enough and they didn't say that, that the meeting was canceled or that we were going to continue it later or anything. He -hmm. was lying there possibly dying or dead. And we had Mm -hmm. to close in prayer and it wasn't primarily to pray for him. I'm sure he was mentioned in the prayer. But we had to do it right. right. We had to finish that right. that meeting because the meeting, the show the must go on. The meeting is first. Yeah, right. the performativity of it. And I mean, he survived right. that. They got an ambulance wow. there and, and all of that. For me, that's what meeting eventually started to look like. It was a place with a lot of old people, no life to it, just this droning, dead, trance-like thing with danger there, with genuine passive-aggressive backstabbing character assassination stuff, that competitive yes. fighting going on and yet i was told that there was no safer place in the assembly i was only 18 and of course i was told that and i'm like well i have to believe that right but i knew it was wrong I many knew people were hurt there many people stories that are coming out even now which doesn't mean that it's like the the plymouth brethren's fault that people got hurt it was just that we shouldn't have claimed that somehow we had a magic utopia that was safe from all sin and evil yes that's exactly it because i mean people hurt people Mm-hmm. Right. It's what people do. Ben and Ed note how Victorian all of their meetings were, even in Colombia, South America. Something interesting is how these missionaries who went to Colombia, uh, many of those, even the way they, they build their buildings, uh, 
it's so much like the idea about having a chapel, a church, or a hall mm-hmm. based on the same design. They they grew up in England or in the states, and and the way the chairs, the way they put the pulpit, or the 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 Lord's table, all these things is mainly cultural things, you know, like. And if you really want to, you know, start studying all these things, you find many things like we're kind of following rules from other countries, cultural stuff. I, d- I don't think the churches in the Bible had chairs at all. For example. Yeah, I don't I don't think historically they would have had chairs. No. The, I've always thought the Lord's Supper that we have now made as a, a very specific thing. Mm-hmm. probably because of the Catholic Church the, the, the 1,500 years ago. What you'd expect in a church is that if you reveal vulnerability and mm-hmm. a problem or that you, you're suffering, mm-hmm. there's a, at least the idea that the role of the church should be to help mm-hmm. you. To and help. In, in, in a competitive one, when you reveal that you've made a mistake mm-hmm. or you're confused or something, you've confessed to an error. You're weaker, mm-hmm. you're lesser. And you've confessed it, so you get demoted in status. John's Plymouth Brethren Christian Church upbringing combined alcoholic stupor with meeting lecture stupor all into one in a way that wasn't seen in our slightly different Brethren group. The gathered saints John grew up with invariably fortified themselves for the five meetings on a Sunday by drinking alcohol between all of those. Fellowship. Most brethren groups that I'm aware of do not allow people to have alcohol, either to imbibe it or to have it in their house. It's just they don't want it. And in my time, it would be like a secret thing that someone had a secret stash of that liquor cabinet somewhere. It was a, you know, very secret thing because alcohol was just not allowed. You, you could have your sip of high alcohol wine at the breaking of bread Sunday morning, even if you were 10 but you could not have a glass of wine with supper. I mean, that wasn't the way our group would have been back in Europe a hundred years ago, that they would have smoked and drank. Um, but what about your group as a child and alcohol? Yeah, actually, alcohol, I think, possibly reveals that, that one of the traits behind all these laws is it's basically what the man of God prefers, what he likes. He didn't like and his wife didn't like dogs, wasn't that it? I, I heard that, that that he would never have gotten I, I rid heard. of pets except his wife didn't like dogs. I heard that as well. Yes, yeah. And um, I think going back to the third man of God, JT Senior from New York, and, and of course definitely his son, they, they loved their whiskey, and uh, so therefore that was introduced. And the brethren in the 22 years I was there, where I was there, were, were heavy drinkers. And in fact, since then, I've spoken to those who have left, and they say that many brethren are alcoholics, and they go to AA, now, uh, which is an association which they wouldn't have been allowed to go to, but they go secretly, apparently, to uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and do a 12-step program, because many are alcoholics. And so, uh, yeah, I, I was introduced to it when I was well, 15, you know, a pint of um, beer. And, of course, um, in the six o'clock breaking of bread uh or every single person that uh a lord children would have coburn's port which is very strong um port mm-hmm. and um i remember uh, always hoping that i'd be the last one to have it because then i could finish it off right and i'd, and I'd spend i'd have about you know five huge gulps and i'd spend the rest of the uh, meeting in a daze 
it, it's weird because obviously that's very foreign to me because we didn't, didn't, nobody in theory had any alcohol. But that whole thing with the just endless meetings and the idea that alcohol would also be part of this, I'm assuming that when you'd go to someone's house on Sunday for a refreshment, you could have alcohol. Virtually everyone would have alcohol. Right. So yeah, it's yeah. not, not, a, not a maybe, it's a likely. So a lot of these meetings that you're sitting through, that weirdly brings together two songs because the, um, the second song on my album was about being a brethren person. And for the first time, uh, seeing drunk people uptown and thinking they were like zombies and it was crazy. You know, I was completely unfamiliar with the fact that these people would poison themselves to the point of falling over and throwing up. And to me, they seemed like they were zombies. And then I had a job where someone would come into work and he'd be so hungover, he'd look like a corpse, you know? And so I have a song about that. And then at the end of the album, I kind of have a different one about people going out to church and listening to these endless droning sermons and how zombie-like they are sometimes, they seem to me. And this is a coming together of both of these, that you'd have people sitting listening to these sermons all Sunday long, and there was a bunch of alcohol involved too. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it was the culture. I heard that the reason, that it wasn't just that, that, the members were allowed to drink alcohol, but there was this idea that if priests came to your house to be hospitable, you'd be required to be equipped and stocked with some alcohol to provide them. That's what I heard. That, that was the culture, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, whiskey, Johnny Walker, Red Label. That's hard to imagine that you're in trouble, maybe, let's say, for touching a television. And so the priests come to your house, maybe without almost any warning, and the first thing you do is give them whiskey? Yes. Yeah, that's so different. Emily from up the road, having converted from charismatic Christianity to atheism, sees a connection between alcoholism and church. I can identify with what you said, actually, of, you know, sitting in that staff meeting or at that cenotaph or whatever, and just listening to the droning going on. And I mean, obviously, at a cenotaph, it is a very depressing topic, right? So that's that is the goal of it. But especially going back to, you know, the sermon or um, the staff meeting and it just being this weighty subject and this really boring subject and it's just weighing on you. I just think of, you know, how tired you get mm-hmm. in those meetings or during that sermon and how it's literally putting you to sleep and you're bored out of your skull. And it's almost like, you start to have that out-of-body experience. <laughs> and these aren't really TED Talks or anything. Like my experience mm-hmm. first in church and then at the workplace is that often there really isn't anything that needs to be said, but it's time to say something. And that's why yeah. it feels so dead. Even um, like my union, I get these emails and I realize you sent me an email to inform me that you had sent me that email. Yeah. There's something not real, authentic, alive or or, or essential about a bunch of this that we're just filling the time and even things like candy crush. Like there's sometimes you just want that flow experience. You're thinking too much and you want to be removed from your own thoughts, but there's a lot of things that we're doing that are just biding time until death. Yeah. You're killing time. And it's almost like in killing time, there's that sense of you're killing yourself almost because you're just filling up your time with empty, meaningless crap that I, when I do that, I often just, I regret it that Mm -hmm. same day or, you know, that same hour. It's like, oh my goodness, 20 minutes just went by and I was not entertained, not engaged. Mm -hmm. I just did this thing. So for the sake of doing something and I'm disappointed in myself, you know, I could have been 
paying more attention to my kids or actually reading a book that I care about or, you know, resting and closing my eyes. Mm-hmm. I actually find that as a source of depression for me that as a teacher, we get these huge, like intense, like work t- to an inhuman number of hours when you're not actually in the school with report cards and courses and people failing and all these things that accelerates. And then suddenly two months where you get sort of a few emails and things that you have to do during there and a bunch of planning, maybe take a course or two, but generally you have this time and there's such a feeling of, well, I better use the time. Like time is, is not infinite and you feel like you wasted the shame in wasting it. But it's also, you don't want to just do more work because there's recreation that's supposed to be happening. And I think mm-hmm. that things like that, I, that I might do on my phone, it's, an anesthetic, just like those church sermons where it just n- numbs you. It gets you through an hour. And after the hour's over, mm-hmm. you don't really know what happened or why. You're just mm-hmm. an hour closer to death and you have played Candy Crush or doom scrolled Twitter or been on Instagram or heard a sermon and you don't remember what it was about or went to a staff meeting and they said that we're doing something that nobody seemed to understand what they're talking about and nobody cared and it doesn't matter and you can forget it and it will never matter. Um, mm-hmm. To me, that's all kind of the same thing. Tim, who is, among many other things, a recovering addict, also thinks some personalities use the Bible and church as a way to numb their spiritual development rather than growing and reaching out. I'd like to have a better relationship with the Bible than I can manage, and I'm learning about it, but um, the Bible's not opium for me. It's not that you know, I don't like start reading it and now I feel comfortable and I stop thinking and, and my I feel good and my brain turns off like it's the opposite. Whenever I open the Bible, it's going to upset me and challenge me and make me confused and stuff. And I, and that's not what I hear coming out of most Christians, right? But that's the way that it is. The Bible is to me very challenging. So, um, that's, that's me. You know, you you just brought something to my mind that I I never really thought about that this podcast has got the Bible is being opium. Boy, if that ain't, that's a bastard freaking truth right there man i mean i got as addicted to reading scriptures and feeling off of that as i ever did in drugs man it's interesting so it was the opposite with me i'm just i'm definitely not a communist or a marxist but karl marx was anti-religion and he said religion is the opium of the people and um i think it is for a lot of christians and it's the opposite for me so for them it's like uh there's a lot of people that when you want to have a serious conversation about life or death or love or anything, they'll just sort of like quote some church stuff and the conversation's over because they don't want to think. It's like an, it's, it anesthetizes, like it puts them asleep. And I think the Bible can be like that for people. But see, I was raised, I, I had to memorize the Bible every week um, before I could read. I was being people, my parents were telling me the King James Bible, you know, the thou, thus, you know, that no modern stuff allowed. And so I think, and I was, you know, I was hitting with a paddle with the Bible on it. So I think I was abused with the Bible. Sure. But I don't want to chuck it. I want to have it now. But it means I have to make it, I have to let the Bible be something other than what they were making it be. The thing about Jehovah's Witnesses, I remember, is, is uh, we would go to assemblies. You know, my dad took, that was one kind of cool thing, is my mom and dad had got divorced. And he would take me and my little brother all over the states to these assemblies, you know, took us all the way out to Seattle, Washington one time. I, I was born out there. He, and, uh, uh, you know, we would go to Detroit, Michigan a lot of times to assemblies. And I remember those, uh, productions they would put on. I don't know if you, if you've talked to Jehovah's Witnesses much. They, they have these, um, dramas. They're called dramas. 
and, and it's it's full productions like they're Bible stories, and they got the characters that come out and everything. You know, and we love that shit, man. I loved it as a kid. That was the one thing. Other than that, it was like you you were basically stuck there on a on a bench for a seat for hours listening to these guys speak, you know. And I don't really remember a whole lot of what they said, but so you're on the on the stage with Holy Fire, and you're singing that people are going to go to hell. Is that you talking, that 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 message, or is it the Holy Spirit talking, or is it the church talking, or who's who's talking when you're telling these people that they're going to hell? Well, that was mostly my lead singer that was writing those lyrics. Uh, I was just I was the guitar player, man. I was you know I, I was up there thinking I'm George Lynch with two and a half fingers. Right. <laughs> you know, and, uh, and, and frankly, I was, you know, at that age, man, I was hoping to meet a girl, you know, I was there for a lot of reasons yeah. and I was just, doing, I think I was just doing it. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. Uh, and I, I probably felt like it was the Holy spirit that was leading us. Um, but you know, that's, this, this kind of brings me up to a, a, an interesting point today is, you know, back then, I, I didn't really get into too much of what I saw when I was doing drugs. But I, for the longest time, the reason I believed in God was because of the, it was because of the evil that I saw. Right. It wasn't because I saw some angels. It's because I've seen some other shit that really freaked me, that scared me to death. Yes. You know, and so, so, but now today, um, I know this, mostly that was because I was on, on drugs. My mind was all screwed up. It, you know, whether the, devil was there or not i don't know i thought i saw those things but what i've come to find believe is that the devil lives between here and here the devil ain't out here something that my problem is right in here you know the six inches in between my head and and satan is probably much more made up you know a friend of mine told me the story goes you know the devil was the devil was sitting on a park bench and he was crying and somebody came up to him and said what's the matter why are you crying so, because I keep getting blamed for all the shit that I didn't do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, uh, I was talking, and, uh, with, talking with Cheryl yesterday about what you're talking about, the stuff that's between your, your ears, right? And I, you know, I, I believe you got a deal. And I've had Christians actually say, like, what do you mean by that word? What do you mean deal? Like the way I was raised, I would have assumed that Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe one single thing that's the same as evangelical Christians. And yet they do. Well, and you, we watch this shit. Yeah, yeah, and, and you would think that Jews, you know, they don't believe most of the Christian stuff or they don't come. Like, talking to Cheryl yesterday, uh, she's more of a New Age person, which I'm not aware of that stuff. You know what I keep finding? Everyone reaches the same answers. So they're Muslims or they're Buddhists or they're Christians. And when it comes down to the right answer for how do you treat people, how do you live, you know, they're coming to the same answers. I struggle with a couple of verses in the Bible still. One of them is uh, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. Yeah. I mean, that's one of those things. It's like, well, that kind of limits it. <laughs> Un- unless he's bigger than Christianity. I think Jehovah's Witnesses are taught that if they don't go door to door and preach, that they may not be redeemed or may not reach the afterlife. Mm-hmm. Is that part of the Mormon faith as well? Not specifically, but it certainly encouraged uh, the men more so than the women mm-hmm. to go forth in the world and spread the word and to get them while they're young and excited about it. And, and you yourself did a bit of that, you said. 
Uh, well, I went with the missionaries, but mostly because I had a crush on one of them, I think. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Uh, COVID, obviously, different things will have happened with meeting. But something that started be- to become trendy uh, was taking that Tuesday night prayer meeting and the Thursday night Bible reading and combine them into a single meeting to get everything done in one day and yes. half the time. And when did that happen for you guys? It was Just like a ripple. So it, it's the looser quote unquote assemblies did it first and it very gradually spread and it, it took a long time, but eventually became pretty standard. Um, the objections, as I recall, one poor guy said, well, what are we going to do on Thursday evenings now? Aww. He didn't have a TV and he was saying like, what will we do with the extra time? Like he obviously had enough trouble filling his time. And I relate yeah. now that I'm the age that he probably was when he said that. But yeah, the t- his mind, like he had to come out because what else would you do? He didn't have a, yeah. a clue about what else to do. Oh, that's sad. I guess, yeah. That kind of that guy, I kind of feel sorry for him. He used to pinch my <laughs> knee if I didn't look, give him eye contact when he taught me Sunday school. But apart from that, he never did a bad thing. Um, <laughs> yeah, some people are dead, and I don't like to say bad things about them. And 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 honestly, they were making the meeting work the best way they could. Did you ever hear women get to? Uh, try to lead a Bible study or, or have a Bible discussion with you? Or do they, do they do the same Victorian nonsense or, or, or what? They were better, interestingly. Very little of that in Victorian nonsense. In my group, uh, it, women were not encouraged to have Bible studies. Um, we, <laughs> Some of the younger women in my church decided we were going to start one, and some of the older women did come a time or two. And we got through the book of Acts, and then we gave it up. Uh, but yeah, there was a little bit more um, of, the, of being real with each other in it. But you could still, I mean, don't get me wrong, you still couldn't be honest and say, oh, man, I'm really struggling with this terrible sin right now. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we're not talking about that. But yeah, and, less and small of the... groups, I think, were created so that men could confess to that manliest of all sins to confess to pornography addiction. I think that's why there are small groups for men is so they can proudly <laughs> cop to that weakness that their libido is bigger than all the other libidos in the room. They just can't oh, control gross. it. <laughs> oh, yeah, they can't control it. I interrupted you saying about what it was like with the women. It wasn't that bad. It wasn't that bad. They, uh, The women would speak in regular English, they wouldn't use as much of that special brethren vocabulary. I just had a thought that may be because we were not having our little Bible study in the church. That may have been a church only vocabulary. We were in somebody's living room. So you didn't have to be like respectful of the the business. That's right. Um, I have to point out that when I went into the high tech career that didn't last, and when I've been a teacher and gone to staff meetings, I've sat through an awful lot of women talking, mostly women, in fact. Women dominated all of my jobs, and they they were all the chairpersons and, and did all the things. And in my experience, they were also filling time and using jargon just as guiltily as any man could hope to. I they think in the corporate, yes, in the corporate world, absolutely. They were like covering off on signing off on talking to and tabling various subjects moving yes. forward at this point in time, people. And it, I'm just yes. like, this is yes. gibberish. <laughs> and they would actually start correcting the rest of us. Like don't say problems, say issues or something. Yeah. Yeah. As yep. far as the Bible studies, um, I don't think women had Bible studies at all in much. They could have, but nobody was bold enough to do that. And young people <laughs> was another one that young people weren't supposed to have Bible studies unsupervised. So, right. um, that sounds I, right. That sounds familiar. I had a thing and I asked if I could have a Bible study and I was forbidden to have a Bible study. And so I sneakily 
had a Bible study and my grandfather swore at me for having a Bible study. <laughs> what, what did he say? What swear word? Oh, it wasn't anything much, but it wasn't appropriate to a Bible discussion, probably, although the word's <laughs> in the Bible. Um, but yeah, I had people over and I thought like we're going to the woods on his property and we're, we were, you know, seeing nature and all that. I thought we, we're in the woods. Like no one's going to know if we whip at our Bibles. Like it's private. No one can see them. And I tried, first of all, I tried to have one. And what I found was those things happen because young, teenage men and young men want to talk, not because anyone wants to listen. And so a couple of us wanted to talk. No one wanted to listen. So it was a waste. So it didn't, didn't go well at all. And then the next time I was over at my grandpa's house for some other purpose, he just gave me this look and he said, I know what you did and you better learn to keep your damn mouth shut when it comes to the Bible. <laughs> That's the second last thing I can remember him ever saying to me. The last thing I can remember him <laughs> saying to me is he was in a nursing home and he just said, never let them put you in a place like this. Oh, that's so sad. <laughs> I, I get my positive and cheerful attitudes through my genes, I think. Um, in other ways, I'm very proud of my grandpa. Like, I swear he was like 70 and he was cutting down trees and getting his personally trained workhorses to drag the trees out of the bush and things and milling them and all the things that I'm now learning how to do with wood, he was doing when he was 12 and he didn't stop till he was like yeah. son's age now. I felt very keenly the fact that my parents, that I was not what they wanted. Um, did, did you find like your sister felt that more than you or not? Like, that it really stung? No, I think, I think we, I think we felt it equally. I think it hurt her more. I think, okay. um, I think, there was a time when, so I, I obviously moved away and I was gone and my sister was a teenager and I think her and my dad were kind of close. She at least thought they were close. Um, mm -hmm. They were, I mean, in reality, my dad just hated my mom. And so he would hang out with my sister mm -hmm. when he was home instead of her. But my sister took that to like, feel like they had some sort of connection. Um, and so when she moved away and basically he never spoke to her again. Uh, she took that, she took that hard. She was like, I actually thought, you know, that yeah. we were, you know, that we were actually kind of buds, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think she had to come to terms with the fact that, yeah, she was just like kind of a pawn, just a, just a piece of the puzzle, you know, like everybody else. And, and this is another, one of those subtle things that's hard to explain. You know, like w one thing is like, why wouldn't you leave a church that you're miserable in? What that reminds me of is my parents, I don't think had a functional marriage for about 20 years of it, at least. And, yeah. and I'm sure that why did our parents not divorce? Well, what was, what, what would it have meant if our parents had divorced? Yeah. Well, I mean, if my parents had divorced, my dad would have lost his job. Mm -hmm. And that was the entire income for yep. my family. You know, my mom wasn't allowed to work because it, if she worked, it meant that that they didn't believe the Lord would provide for them. Mm -hmm. So my mom was a teacher. She loved teaching. She loved working when I was a kid. She substitute taught still, you know, and then, you know, she wasn't allowed to work anymore. So she was... Mm -hmm. That piece of her was taken away. Her kind of sense of purpose was then stripped away. My mom didn't want to have a second kid. She wasn't supposed to. Kidney like disease runs in my family and she had it. She was told if she had another kid, she could die. And she got pregnant, of course, had to have the kid. 
She was very sick. She was on the road with my father in the States. You know, anything could have happened to her. She could have died. I remember her being in strangers' houses, you know, just bedridden. And But it was all just like a f***ing show. Show must go on. Exactly. Like, oh, like have sympathy. Like, look at my sick wife, you know. That's like the perfect thing, you know, to get people's sympathy, get people's money. It was just a fucking circus. It puts you in a weird performative state, doesn't it? That the show must go on because I even, I mean, I, I know a bunch of brethren people whose fathers had similar positions. And one of them, she told me her father was a missionary. I'm not going to name her in the podcast, but for the purposes of this, she, her, she's and um, she told me about that very special position of being a missionary's daughter and being given money. And then maybe they wanted a radio or a toaster and they would look to see which one looked the most humble or modest or cheap. And, and they would actually buy one that maybe even cost more because if the cheapest one looked too awesome, then they would be ashamed to let people see that they'd bought it. So it was this whole performance of, of poverty that it was weird. Yeah. I mean, I don't think, I think there was times when, you know, there wasn't a lot of money and, you know, times that were better than others for sure. But it was just a whole song and dance, you know. And Johan's dad, Don, hated being worksplained to back when he worked at Nortel Networks. He not only found it incredibly boring to sit and listen to someone explain things he already knew, but it made him hostile. And if you don't know Johan or his dad, they're not the kind of people who almost ever get that way. Well, of course, there was... Uh... There was one time when we had one of the guys who hadn't worked with us for that long, but he had this attitude that he thinks, thought that he knew more than we did, even coming from outside the company. And he uh, was trying to explain his point as if we didn't know it already. So it was kind of boring having to listen to him tell us things we already knew. I had to work for the, with that guy on the project and I really hated his guts that one time. But I had to work with him personally, just him and me together in the labs. And, but he was tough. Yeah, hard to work with. Drawing the parallel between the alcoholics being like zombies because of how numbed they are to um, their human experience as a result of the alcohol. And then, um, yeah, going from that to people in church being like zombies, that does bring something to mind because I think that there is a certain brand of spirituality that is addictive. Yeah. And um, like alcohol, it can act as a numbing agent. Looking back on my experience, I can see how there were times when I used that, you know, as a buffer between me and the world or, you know, the emotional pain or the experiences that I was going through or asking the deeper questions or facing doubts and so on and so forth. You know, it can be a numbing agent and a drug that way. And it can make you very zombie-like to fall into that pattern and use it as a way of avoiding um, confronting problems mm-hmm. or um, confronting, you know, whatever other difficult stuff the world is going through or you're going through. There are people who, when they go out to church, it's like a the sermon is like a lullaby. 
It's like putting mm-hmm. their objections to sleep. If they kind of walk in a bit unsettled and jonesing for that Sunday morning fix, they've got doubts. They're worried about Afghanistan. They're worried about their wife. They're worried about that they've been looking at porn. They worry about all these things. And then that lullaby happens and this soothing voice tells them that God loves them. And for the rest of the week, hopefully they, they think that, well, there's a guy Sunday who knows the answers and it's, it's actually fine because he says, and they stop worrying. And I think that sometimes they should be worrying and other mm-hmm. times they should learn not to worry without the sermon that, you know, mm-hmm. actually get used to life. But that's, that's for, for, for some people, that's absolutely the way. And probably you're the same, but very young. I'd be listening to the sermon and there'd be outrage in me. There'd be just things would pop up and say, but that doesn't make any sense or that doesn't apply to us or the Bible says the very opposite of what you're saying or Jesus would disagree with you. So for me, the experience of church has always been an irritant. It's always been something that stirs me up, makes me feel like an outsider, makes me feel like I'm not part of that religion. I must have a different religion. And I Mm -hmm. found that when trying to talk to a lot of people about religion at all, worldview, the Bible, philosophy, a lot of them, that's not what they're doing. They're just getting high. And I mean, Mm -hmm. some of the churches, it's like, can you trip balls on Molly Jesus? And they're just like dancing around. And ours wasn't that. Ours was the heroine. Ours was just chill you down to being nearly dead. Um, Because that's Mm -hmm. what heroin does is actually suppresses your uh, your respiratory system until eventually you stop breathing if you take too much. And I I feel like churches are different. Some of them excite people into divine ecstasy. And ours was the opposite of it was always repressing and suppressing. Children, adults, whatever, be quiet, sit still, don't think, don't feel, just be with us. Um, Just follow the rules, right? It's like your set of rules to live by. You're going to be fine if you follow follow these rules. And then if you aren't fine, then it must be because you didn't follow the rules. So let's talk about how you're not following the rules right now. Yes, just follow the rules and just Mm -hmm. ask God that he will just give me what I just want and you'll just get it. And I'm looking at all the justs as social lubricants and saying, all of those justs mark a place where some of that could have fallen down and not happened. I can't imagine your mom playing on stage. She's more of no. a quiet, a quiet, sweet personality as far as I know. Yeah. <laughs> I love my mom. You know, since my father is, is dead, it's actually like opened up a bit of a space for, for me and Amy to have a bit of a relationship with my mom that we couldn't, we didn't have before. So that's great. But my mom was very, very she was a beaten down woman I'll say that but she Mm. took that on everyone else she wasn't she was not a nice person a lot of the time and I think she just that was just a residual like my husband's an asshole so now I'm going to be an asshole because that's just how gotcha some of the some of the ideas on the album um and and also in the interviews is we're kind of looking at well what was what's so bad about upbringings of this kind and I think that what a lot of us have agreed on is like one of the worst things is how much it like shatters families. It, it separates yeah. people. Totally. So, I mean, I was sorry to hear about your father for your sake, especially, but the fact that it kind of opens the door that you kind of realize who you have left and you connect, that's good to hear. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, it's like I went years and years without seeing either of my parents, you know, 
at different times for not for really any particular reason, except for that no one really made that effort. You know, mm-hmm. I don't think my dad cared. I think it was easier for him just to like kind of put us in another place and not worry about it. I think he made it hard for my mom to have any sort of relationship with us. Um, you know, and do you feel like given the world that they lived in, it's almost like there isn't any place for people like us. They don't know how to even include us because we don't fit anywhere. Yeah, I guess. I think for my dad, though, I don't think he really cared that I was gay. I don't think he cared, you know, that I went off and like lived this life. In fact, I think he might have like envied me a little bit for doing that. I don't think he cared about that. I think he just was like, I can't like have you in like this narrative that I've created for no, for no other reason that then that you don't fit in this like storyline, you know, that you're just going to be over there. And like, I was like, okay, whatever, you know? Cause my dad always had this attitude that if he was going to be preaching, his kids had to do what he needed us to do. And I think a lot of his over controlling of us was to guarantee that he could keep preaching. I don't know if that happened with you too, but this attitude of if my kids aren't sorted, then I need to shut up. So I better sort these kids. And there was too much control of how things looked. That's so interesting because that was almost quite the opposite. Like, I think my mom was more concerned with that. Like Mm -hmm. my mom was like, well, this is going to reflect badly on me. I want my kids to be a certain way. I want them to be presented. I think my dad was like, well, while you're young, I'm going to drag you around and you're going to be seen. But like, he never tried to like stop us from, he was just like, all right, see, I like, just get out of the, just get out of the way so I can keep going. You know, like, I don't think it really like irked him. I don't think it like made him feel like a failure in any way. Like, I think it's interesting. Yeah. I think he was like a giant narcissist. And like, I don't think that he could like process I was more than aware while writing these lyrics as a young man that I was flipping the script on those thousands of hours of preaching I'd sat through. What I'd grown up with was the idea that the world was a dark place filled with people walking around who didn't know they were dead. Christians, true Bible-believing born-again ones, were the only human beings who were truly alive in this spiritually dead, dark, wicked world. Our worship style was unrelentingly Victorian, which was more about preparing for earthly death than about anything else. We would die soon, but it was okay, because Jesus had died first to show us the way out. There was supposed to be a paradox there. Those young people grabbing life by the gonads and yelling and partying, having sex and carrying on? Spiritually devoid of life. But going out to church, sitting still while people talked about not living almost any of our young lives, doing pretty much nothing besides the church stuff, that was evidence of real, deep, divine spiritual life. Something precious that regular folks could never enjoy or understand before they actually died unless they came and listened to us talking endlessly about it. But I noted the flat voices the expressionless faces, the droning, repetitive preaching, the singing, quote-unquote, and 
praying, the firm, unthinking suppression of most evidences of life at meeting. People dressed up from a very young age as if ready to be laid out in their coffins, sitting as still as corpses, silently and without facial expressions, as the voices droned on and on and on in exactly the way they did at graveside services and funerals. Some brethren funerals are definitely more light-hearted than brethren Sunday morning worship services. When people die, we're supposed to be happy there in glory. When it's Sunday morning, we're supposed to plunge deep into the sorrow, to remember that Jesus died and it's our fault. It's only sad when Jesus dies, you see. In the lyrics of this reprise of the alcoholism song, my young self seems to be seeking to remind himself and others that they are naturally, vibrantly, undeniably alive, and that communities of the kind I grew up in are committed to deadening folks out, to taking the life out of their lives. I was speaking as if I had lots of life in me and was imagining the horror of losing it. In fact, I had begun to lay hold on a growing certainty that there was a whole lot more life possible to me, and to hope to live it out sometime soon, despite growing up zombified. To cite a 50s B-movie, I was a teenage zombie. Now, to state the very, very obvious, Christianity's biggest claim, biggest selling point, is that it brings resurrection, new life, life out of death, and that's what I wanted from meeting, light and life, but it seemed to be giving me a dark, muted, still, zombie existence. Yet the Bible promised the light and life that I wanted. So, rather than decide that there was no God, or that he didn't really offer light and life, or that the Bible was wrong, I decided that it was promised in the Bible, so our group was messing up how to demonstrate, nurture, and share it with us there somehow. It had gotten sidetracked down rabbit trails of, as the Apostle Paul laid out in his administrative letter to Titus, instead choosing to argue about trivial, obscure points of the law, pursuing divisions, and so on. And there was an all-too-human evil there, evil of the kind a possible Nazi in Kurt Vonnegut's novel Mother Night defines as the evil that wants to hate without limit, imagining God is on its side, hating right along with us. Who am I to judge my birth culture like this? Claim that evil was going on among the gathered saints? Well, someone who can report that I was, and still am, hated without limit, imagining God is on the side of the haters. Someone sent away to die alone. Someone people are warned against even being tagged on Facebook by. That's my life, just like the lives of a lot of people from meeting. When I was three... I'd ask God to save me from the natural, failed, imperfect state I'd been taught I'd been born into. In my twenties, I actively started looking to God in the Bible to save me from the darkness and death I'd grown up under in the meeting. Even the average worldly human life clearly had more light and life than we were allowed, and I started to be saved from it. So they cast me away, lest it spread to other people. And not to be too much of a Joseph about it, but maybe that was part of God saving me from that evil, that darkness, that bondage. So, yeah, alcoholics did kind of seem like walking corpses to me back then, especially if you were working with them the next day, and their partying wasn't the best evidence of spiritual light, life, and substance. But for us, church was really a place of death, 
and the zombie imagery fit us like an undertaker's best casket-carrying gloves. As we sat there, our faces looked the same as any funeral director's who knew his job and could keep his face dead and blank without thinking about it. My experience of female funeral directors is that they smile more, kindly, and warmly. But my face still does that dead thing most of the time. Long practice. When I was a new teacher, and it was November 11th, which is Remembrance Day in Canada, our version of Memorial Day or Veterans Day or Anzac Day or whatever, I stood in the auditorium and realized my face and body had been long practiced in reverent solemnity. I looked at kids wearing their hats at jaunty angles, squirrely as methed-out chipmunks, bursting out randomly into uncontrolled laughter, playing with their phones and poking each other and on their handheld gaming devices, none of them facing where their attention was meant to be aimed, and I realized, oh... You guys didn't do this for a few hours every single week since you were born. You weren't spanked if you made noise or wouldn't sit still on Sundays. And I couldn't believe it when I sampled contemporary churches and saw that kids were sent out during worship and did Sunday fun day school instead. Because that recognition of Christ's death, that wake for Jesus, was how we started every single week. And all of us did that before we had lunch on the first day of our week. I also couldn't believe a Sunday morning worship service that involved a preacher in jeans cracking jokes and people laughing uproariously on their phones and walking in and out, up and to the back to refill coffee, get snacks or whatever. I felt like the sermons, if you could call them that, were just reassuring chatter to make people feel good. We're all the same, aren't we? Yeah, we we sure are. And it's, it's funny, isn't it? I, I know I laugh. And, and you know what? The Christian life's like that sometimes. Just, you know, I know mine is. Nothing much from any specific part of the Bible. And if so, not like two verses in a row or anything. Nothing very challenging. Nothing that made you think. Nothing terribly informative. I felt judgmental when I sat there. But I also knew that none of this worked for me at all. I was addicted to all the death and had been trying to kick that habit sometime before I kicked the bucket myself. But this, this didn't do a thing for me. And yes, art, philosophy, and religion are largely consumed with knowing how to deal with the fact that we are all going to die. And as we live, we're going to lose people and things throughout our lives. But there's life to live first, isn't there? And contrary to how I was raised, I began thinking early on that maybe life was important too. Maybe life wasn't part of the dung we were supposed to view all temporal things as. Jesus' life, though lived to die for us one day, seemed terribly important to him. He wanted to do it just right, and he enjoyed, I believe, time with his friends, random folks getting it when he was talking, meals with people, good wine once made with the assistance of God himself in more than just the usual way. But it told you something, that we brethren folk were required to drink a tiny sip of church wine as part of pouring one out for our homie who'd passed, but we were forbidden it for our own life milestones, or when we lost anyone else other than Jesus. No wine outside of Sunday morning breaking of bread, and not even that if you got kicked out or wouldn't sign up to fully commit to the living death to begin with. Very, very little joy and joy of a very specific, narrow kind. Remember shame when it's time to kneel. 
Remember gratitude for not being headed for hell. Remember, you're too good for the enjoyable things of this world that do not last. Remember that you're bound for glory. Live your life as having died to the law, being dead with Christ every day, hoping to live on eternally, but starting only after this life on earth was over. In the podcast, I have often spoken of being indoctrinated as a child, of having doctrine etched indelibly into my personality. Indoctrinated. If you toss that word around, some people squeak a bit and want you to say taught or informed or educated, probably not trained even. Thing is, I'm a trained educator who also pays attention, who also reads things and has nearly two decades of experience doing the job of teaching adolescents. So unfortunately for some, once again, I have thoughts about this subject and a venue where I'm allowed to say them. There is a difference between indoctrinating and educating or informing people, especially children. When you educate beginners, you give them some rudimentary facts and the tools for arriving at answers once questions arise. And as people get more educated in a given area, you give them more and more of a clear picture of what the big questions are and the various conflicting theories and not quite satisfactory answers that have been given to those big questions over the centuries, and what the most popular methods, tools, and theories are today that people still put their faith in or argue about. And often, you reveal that many of these facts you started with might not be quite as solid assumptions as a beginner might expect. You teach a child that Earth is a planet and it has one moon. Then... If they grow up and become theoretical astronomers, they learn what does and does not fit a given definition of a planet or a moon, how arbitrary these definitions are, and you look at whether the Earth has one, none, or eleven orbiting bodies that are, by your definition, moons, and whether Earth itself 100% fits your definition of a planet to begin with, and then you might go on to talk about Pluto. When you educate, you work on maturing and expanding the person's awareness, and you see how far along the path to becoming an independent person who looks into, works on, and contributes to the ongoing conversation you can get them to come before they either lose interest for the rest of their lives or else dig in, don't need you, and finally take off like a lawnmower whose start cords you were repeatedly pulling. One of the first things people do if you're educating them and they're paying attention and they develop an interest is they try to take you on. They try to look into those other theories or methods or schools of thought that they could just tell you didn't value as much to find an exception in class, to try to make you sound wrong. At Kung Fu class, there'd always be the young guy who'd been checking out karate or taekwondo and thought some of it was better and brought it into the Kung Fu class, though he certainly couldn't have beat any of the senior Kung Fu guys. Made him cocky, though, and argumentative. At sword class, there'd always be the guy who'd listen to the head instructors mainly teach techniques from German sword masters and who would bring in Italian techniques the head instructors were certainly familiar with and competent in, but not terribly fond of. Because this gives the illusion that a comparatively inexperienced guy is already as experienced and informed as you, their teacher, is. They can argue with you like an equal, simply because they can kind of take a counterposition, even without actually being an equal. If they ride on the coattails of someone you disagree with, they can pretend to have the knowledge, experience, and skills of that person in having a run at you. And you don't mind it much. 
It's an important baby step for them. It's cute, kind of. It's good. Imitation is a key part of education. And that guy's likely going places in the discipline. But what are differences between education and indoctrination? Well, for one... Educating people increasingly opens up their thinking to see that any discipline is an ongoing conversation with issues that become clearly more and more complicated and hard to solve or study the more you wrestle with them. Education lets people know they will never know everything and can look forward to a lifetime of always learning and working, all the while encountering people from time to time who know more about a given area than they do. The sign of great experts is their ability to defer to other experts in certain things. When you are indoctrinating people, though, you tend to use propaganda, emotional appeal, and oversimplification to make an issue look simple, pretty much figured out, and solvable all in that one talk you're giving. The, the government? government? We can explore everything that's wrong with it and figure out how to fix it in under an hour in the one TED Talk. I don't know much. But, but I, I do know, know this. It, it just makes, makes sense. sense. Sounds right, right to, to me. me. That's indoctrination. You narrow thinking to ensure it arrives precisely where you want it to end up in a timely manner so the thinking can stop. And you're quite happy with people parroting your words rather than thinking themselves. They'll think they're thinking too. When you have someone else's thought sitting right there in your head, it feels like you are thinking, because there's a thought in your head. But if you are indoctrinating, and you agree to have a conversation that presents itself as an open discussion, it keeps narrowing back down to that same answer, instead of broadening out to the actual complexities of real-world stuff. If you're an adult with a relatively quick mind, everything the average child or teenager that you're indoctrinating says ought to be something you can dismiss or pretend to incorporate into what you're instilling. But really quick-witted teens are the worst thing that can happen when you're busy indoctrinating adolescents. Experts debate one another for fun, for free. Doctrine slingers need to be the only one talking, or need there to be one view that is the only acceptable view being discussed with any respect. I know pastors who see putting an end to doctrinal discussion among their congregants as a duty analogous to weeding their garden. One congregant has heard a thing about Calvinism he has liked that makes sense to him, and it needs to be immediately made clear to him, apparently, rather than learning more about the centuries-long Arminianism-Calvinism debate, that no debates or discussions of the matter are going to happen, not in that Christian group, just because we have the answer. Let's not ruin it with a bunch of talking. Let's not be so clever we think ourselves out of our fondly held correctness. A teacher who I took over for back in the day had a notice on his classroom door that read, Welcome, Welcome to the, the conversation. conversation. I liked it because I appreciate that very traditional view of education as a conversation. Socrates might agree with me. And I try to get students talking, but mostly they're scared in the modern world to talk for fear of being judged in some way, mostly by their peers, of, of anyone claiming offense. And if they do talk, they don't suspect how much they're simply repeating their training. I can tell because I could tell them what they're about to say next most of the time about racism, about the government, about the environment, about school, about obesity, about Russia, about China, about Islam, about cancer, about an upcoming election. 
when they pause in mid-sentence trying to remember what the words are that they've been given, I usually know what the rest of the sentence is likely going to be. I've heard adolescents think out loud before. I've heard the phrases before, many times, phrased exactly that way. I don't, of course, make them feel like robots who have been programmed. Of, Of course not. But it's clear. They're kids. They're still new on this planet. Their brains haven't been left running for long yet. They've been more trained, more indoctrinated than educated so far. As a result, they think that everything is relatively simple, and that they know much of it, and that they thought of it themselves. And this is understandable. Talk to a bunch of college-age people and see how easy they think it would be to fix things if only people saw things clearly like they do. You will hear the smartest, best-informed, most rational human beings who haven't ever done much of anything yet who ever lived. In fact, They don't even know all the different ways there are to think about, study, and approach a given thing, let alone being themselves hardworking people who have put in decades thinking about and wrestling with fixing the thing in question. No kid has had decades to spend thinking about a thing or trying to improve anything. It's all exciting, simple, and new to them. They don't get why we think it's hard and tedious and complicated. It looks so simple and fresh to them. In schools, some teachers are training kids, and that has its place. In something like math or chemistry or physics, you have to get kids to fairly uncomprehendingly, robotically do operations to arrive at answers of any kind, sensible answers of any kind anyway. And if the education and interest continue and become more self-driven, done by, rather than something simply done to the students, they soon start to look at math and chemistry and physics as fields of discussion, and discuss it all, they certainly will, in their own free time, with those elementary tools and methods all examined for their blind spots and shortcomings. Suddenly, even math isn't all facts and right answers. Theories and theorists come into it. That's elevated level thinking. It's education happening. And in recent decades, we have tried to start there with kids, with kids being asked to think and perform like instant experts, sages in early stages of cognitive development, untrained experts with confident opinions they've been given by someone else. In education, there is often a real reluctance to admit to any necessity of teaching kids anything. The fond view is held that kids are all special and unique just the way they are before we let teachers at them with their insane drive to see evidence of knowledge and skills. When they're born, they obviously know everything until we educate them. When done properly, training is a step on the way to education. With indoctrination, it's what you're doing instead of education. The humanities in which I work is supposed to be a more human feel. In theory, kids should be able to jump in faster. They've been human, speaking English, living in this part of history and society for a decade and a half, remembering at least a couple of the things that happened to them in the last couple of years. But just because they've been speaking English doesn't mean they've been thinking about how English is a messy hybrid of Germanic language with arbitrary Greek and Latin infused throughout, often through a filter of French. It's tough, but they haven't thought English spelling through, though, enough. 
And obviously, they've been talking and thinking too without capitals or punctuation, without thinking about verb tenses. So their writing is terrible and has gotten worse every single year I've taught. The basic skills are increasingly not there. It is no coincidence that those basic skills were never told or taught or trained to the kids or that they did not lose any marks, certainly, for not paying attention or acquiring same. It's hard enough to get kids to listen to you for any length of time, but actual education needs you to be able to get them to think about something for a certain length of time without looking at their phones, to work on something without copying anyone else's work or getting a friend or you to do most of the thinking for them throughout the exercise. Many parents angrily accuse us teachers of not helping, by which they often mean not doing all of the thinking first, and the first third or so of all of the assignments for their kids. Not starting everything, not setting everything up for them, not making all of the key executive operative decisions for the kids. Because of this pressure, and us often giving into it, kids are very often not learning very much and lacking operative decision-making power and independent thought and autonomy. So some training might need to happen, though it's been very out of vogue for the past generation or two. When are teachers going to stop teaching kids what to think and start teaching them how to think? Well, kids don't even know the difference between a researched opinion and an emotional reaction at first, not until you help them see that difference. Kids will do anything to avoid being asked to think, but you have to try anyway. I do try to make that a central part of things. But kids just want to be told the right answers, if that. And it's all on Google anyway, right? And that's why, when adult people start to see their own understanding of the Bible as possibly not a reliable shortlist of top five correct answers, and that there might be more to it than simply having five correct answers, and that they might need to explore their attitude toward understanding of and life lived in awareness of a growing, changing relationship with the Bible as a living book, they find it easier to start reading Richard Dawkins instead, or at least listening to an atheism podcast, so long as they can still start out knowing everything and being sure of themselves and seeing everything as pretty simple. When I teach writing to older adolescents, I have to get them to think and say things, like actually think and say things themselves rather than parrot things. So I don't simply get them to copy out a favorite quotation of Ibram X. Kendi or Karl Marx and decorate it with markers and glitter and finger paint while getting basic spelling and punctuation and internal logic completely incorrect. I have them tell me in writing about things that really happened to them or about imaginary things they make up imagining happening to them. And I don't judge the correctness of their thinking and their content. I work with them to communicate clearly, conventionally, and colorfully so that other people get what they're saying. Once they've done a bit of that, I start teaching them how to imitate the thinking and writing of experts in certain fields, playing at that game, rather than the, you're a random kid who's never thought much about this before, what do you think? One that so often passes for education. I work to help them make writing that clearly shows, this is what the one guy thinks, this is what the other guys think, and here's how it's different, and this, a third thing, is me telling what I think about those people's thoughts. Or, here's some evidence that points one way, here's some that points another way, Here's how they're different, and here's what I'm deciding is most likely to be true. That's what I do. 
Otherwise, you get pages of mindless drivel, burbling about how since the dawn of time, humans in our society have struggled under systemic oppression and recycling, and how some things are super bad for the environment, or not, and when will we see equity for traditionally white persons and corrupt patriarchal society and more, because, etc., where would we be without schools and our pancreases, which are super important in many ways and also not in other multiple ones, etc.? Empty page filling, imitating the words without having anything thoughtful to say because nothing really was thought, double plus ungood, unwriting non-think, enjoying, according to school boards, exciting and engaging relevant educational experiences. Here's a pro tip about writing. Don't write a whole bunch of stuff if you haven't actually thought and maybe felt something first. I can't tell you how often students have brought me pages of writing and asked me to help them figure out what it's saying. So, where education revels in how complicated things are, and arguing in a friendly fashion about it all, and it doesn't actually care what you think or feel about the issue until you've done your homework, instead, arming you to have a shot at one day making people care what you think and feel because you know what's being said and how to work and communicate about it yourself, it's far easier to indoctrinate, doing all the opposites of what I've just described, making everything seem simple, pretending you and everyone else cares deeply what the person who is your doctrinal target thinks and feels about an issue, despite them having spent little or no time thinking about it and only pretending to feel much of anything about it yet, and not knowing what anyone much has to say about it, nor how the thing is and has been studied over the centuries to begin with. Nuclear physics... You don't need to learn about atoms to have an uneducated position about nuclear physics, not if you're indoctrinating, nor if you're getting indoctrinated. You just have to make or show appreciation for slogans that have the word nuclear and maybe physics in them, catchphrases, answers to questions you haven't properly looked into yet. Indoctrination is about jumping ahead to an answer without having done any honest work or being honest about things being fairly complicated and not 100% solvable ever by anyone. It uses the word just to just slide things past quickly, entirely unconsidered. It delights in phrases like, it's as simple as that, and that's all there is to it, and that's good enough for me, and that's all anyone needs to know. I hate the expression unpack as much as I hate the various yacht-owning expressions corporate speak navigates by, sets sail under, and is on board with, no matter who on the steering committee takes the helm. But here's a thing. A key tool in indoctrinating people is making them think they understand a thing enough to hold a correct, informed position on it, a position you gave them, without informing them of any sensible alternatives to it, I might add. And a key to that is packing assumptions oversimplifications, and sloppy thinking into, while leaving relevant information and thinking out of, jargon and catchphrases and slogans. Kicking it right out of the room, in fact. So, getting someone to unpack a term or slogan or a bit of jargon means seeing what's normally packed into it when it's being fired casually around the room. The sheer amount of jargon, religious or otherwise, that is packed into a person's sentences reveals either a the vast amount of beginner's knowledge and years of thinking and breadth of study they don't have time to needlessly get into with you at the moment, but with which they are thoroughly conversant, or, B, the vast amount of beginner's knowledge and years of thinking and breadth of study they are glossing over, often without any familiarity with it, themselves. 
People use jargon to save time, avoid thinking, or both. So here's a big one. When you're training and educating someone, you like talent, knowledge, and aptitude, gift. All that makes your job easier. And you're trying to mature their thinking and study and practice as far along as you can. You hope they'll go on to outdo you one day. And you can then claim to have set them up to succeed, given them their start. When you're indoctrinating people, though, like we all were growing up, you're usually trying to simplify things, keep people from thinking too much about it, so you essentially try to stunt their normal intellectual development in an area of thought so it stays exactly what you made it. You don't even want them making slight changes to the terminology and wording that you gave them. When you're indoctrinating someone, you want someone who feels passionately without thinking deeply. You desperately need them not to think very much or for long about a number of things, certainly not unsupervised. Or the fragile web of indoctrination may break and snap under the strain of scrutiny. The main reason I was scary to church folk even as a child was that I was thinking about everything, all the time, unsupervised. And you could tell by the way I used my talk, I was a devil child. So it was time to walk away from me. People wanted away from me and to not only shut me up, but try to get my brain shut down as quickly as possible. And that never really happened. People could tell. Christians say they want people to read the Bible, but mostly they don't. Not unsupervised anyway. And so most don't really. Here's an example of intelligent adult brethren people who are indoctrinated. When I tag people on Facebook because an episode of this podcast is airing and I think they'd be interested or they're actually in the episode, certain people unfailingly object to those people being tagged, brethren or other church people. They say it's appalling for Christians and Christian-adjacent people to be seen to be in any way familiar or affiliated with me and my various wicked works because they don't want me indoctrinating people. And that's certainly what they would do, were they me. I'm trying to do the very opposite of indoctrinating on here. I'm bringing in more than the one side of things, challenging the assumptions to see if we're going to keep or lose them, get people thinking more, not stop doing it entirely. And that scares a lot of people. Here are some actual Facebook objections from actual objectors to actual Facebook friends of mine being associated with my Facebook account and getting tagged in my posts. I mentioned the thumbnail image for the podcast because the people judging me and telling people not to listen to my podcast or be tagged as associated with it are judging me 100% based on just that thumbnail and maybe my Facebook profile picture. First of all, my thumbnail image for the podcast says church upbringing gone wrong. What's the objection? Church upbringings are good and special, and we don't even know how lucky we are to have them. They don't go wrong. To suggest otherwise is all the evidence they're going to entertain in order to arrive at the conclusion that I and anyone who listens to my podcast, you for instance, are the ones who went wrong and need to stop trying to blame church for our own errors. Admit it was us who were wrong, that meeting or church was right all along and get our posteriors back into those pews. Also, my thumbnail for this podcast says the word depression. depression. Now, as we know, Christians don't get depressed. 
How could they? Not with church and Jesus keeping us happy. Otherwise, what would be the point of being a Christian? Being a Christian is all about adding comfort and happiness to one's life, right? Ask the apostles and the other Christian martyrs. So, if people raised Christian are sad, they aren't getting enough church. Clearly, they need more and maybe some pills to make them able to show up at church more, despite what they're feeling and thinking. My thumbnail image also indicates that my thinking seems, viewed blurly and from a great distance, to be very likely to make childhood indoctrination wear off, wash off, or rub off, or whatever, which we cannot have. My thumbnail image is enough, therefore, to make people aware that I am not living in a God-pleasing way, and therefore not only know nothing and have nothing of value to impart, but am being actively harmful to people's hearts, minds, and reputations, and those of their children. Ultimately, my thumbnail image indicates that my podcast is unlikely to make you attend church more, and is therefore unhelpful to what church people are doing. Do church people ever do much of anything that isn't about church? What do I have to offer if I'm not helping someone get out to church more? The question is asked of my friends. Surely not anything they're not already getting at church. It isn't frequently commented upon directly, but the thumbnail image contains the word wicked, a title that is supposed to remain affixed to me as a badge of shame, like the scarlet letter, but like Hester Prynne, turning the adultery A into Abel and other virtues, I have instead spelled wicked like a rapper, preceded with it meaning awesome in the 80s, and I'm kind of amused when Christians think that my monk-like solitary lifestyle in the woods is in any way remarkable, let alone even slightly wicked. Also not commented upon directly is that profile pics indicate I have a beard and longish hair, which to people of a certain age is proof positive that I am living in a nudist commune drinking psychedelic mushroom tea all day and selling biker gangs home-cooked meth out of my basement. I think it's important to remember that several of the people being warned that associating with me will hurt their faith are atheists, which I am not. Not really sure what harm I can do to the faith of atheists. But what's the point of going to all the trouble of labeling me and my friends wicked and telling people not to communicate with us in any way if people are going to go right ahead and treat us like regular human beings? Michael Vetter ironically remarks, it's one thing to have left the meeting and obviously grown cold in your soul toward God, as they say, but it's entirely another thing to have your name associated with Michael Moore. This is what happens in a religious environment that values name and who it's associated with, reputation, over soul, the person, him or herself, and what's going on inside them. A culture that values appearances over realities. When I put an image Michael Vetter painted of me as kind of like Frankenstein's creature on the cover of one of my books, this cover warned true, honest, upstanding, Bible-believing, blood-bought Christians that this wasn't a God-honoring book likely to help people go to church more faithfully. Unpack God-honoring, if you like. There's a lot in there. They want their sunrises on their Christian stuff, like they want positive, affirming talk only in their Christian conversations. The thumbnail image for this podcast, it's a tree, a heretical one apparently, unlikely to make people go to church and appreciate their church and doctrine, I mean upbringing, enough. Indoctrination is trying to tweak and reconfigure and reprogram bits of people's unconscious operating systems on as deep a level as possible. 
I take all this stuff about educating versus indoctrinating very much to heart as a teacher. Am I training kids to hold a certain view and become activists and unthinkingly vote in terms of a certain issue or cause? Or am I training them so they can become experts in a field and do some work one day and very soon know far more than I, a mere high school teacher, needs to to teach adolescents? Is it okay with me if they think, even if that means thinking differently, from me? These are the important questions. Thing is, experts are studying tribalism and the acceptance of authoritarian and totalitarian rule and indoctrination. And what they find is that a lack of capacity for cognitive complexity, for shades of meaning, for nuance, goes hand in hand with collectivism, authoritarianism, and tribalism. People often, but certainly not necessarily stupid, who are simple, unnuanced, one-dimensional in their thinking and mental explorations, respond very well to flags, songs, colors, slogans, and other markers of shared group identity in a way the rest of us just don't. The ritual humiliation or dominance, the shared ordeal, those work for them. So those are valuable tools in indoctrinating some kinds of people, in telling them they're part of a group, and everyone has to, whatever it is, whatever you say, take them off into the woods for a week or two, then you can really indoctrinate them away from any distractions. It's far, far easier to indoctrinate simpler, less self-driven, less curious, less nuanced minds, just like it's far easier in many ways to educate faster, more complex, self-driven, curious, nuanced minds, especially as you move on from young kids to older adolescents and young adults. Anyone want to know what's in the wicked mailbag? What's in the wicked mailbag? A one, a two, a one, two, three, four. Walk into the wicked mailbag opening. The wicked mailbag. What's in the mailbag today? When it comes to those weekly indoctrination sessions at church, Tom says, The bane of my existence and a complete waste of time. Victor says, Somebody kill me. Derek says, Waste of time, signed a former preacher. Fellow preacher Shalomi Homi says, If this is going on, that leader needs to get some self-awareness. That's bad leadership. It is a waste of our time. It is also part of our weekly experience. I hope they become more self-aware and continue to develop as people. Tony says, snooze fest. My cousin Dave says, well, some will rattle on trying to fill their allotted time and others will monologue on with no concept of time. Both are equally annoying in my opinion. Dan, no relation, says, after a long, tiresome monologue, a listener once commented, you were kind of rowing with one oar. As an ADHD church and staff meeting attender, Jane says, My experience has always been to listen to part of the intro and then move on to looking out the window, if there is one. Otherwise, I fidget with my fingers and daydreaming. I never have any idea what they were going on and on about. The times I have attempted to keep up, I have needed to ask questions in order to maintain attention and follow what they are saying. And about 99% of the time, they say no questions until the end, which essentially just puts up a brick wall, so I can't really understand anything further. Having moved on from Plymouth Brethrenism and Christianity alike, Miriam says, it's mostly about the speaker, rarely about the listeners. 
Kim, no relation, says, I like TED Talks. Kelly says, spent my life in church. And you know what I remember the most? Connection with others. I remember having church supper and sitting around a table connecting with people. That, to me, is more like church should be. I hate the format of most Pentecostal churches. Two fast songs, three slow, communion message, which is a mini-sermon, offering and announcements, then sermon, slow song to make you feel the Holy Spirit, then a little benediction and a fast song to hype you up for the week ahead. No connection there, just a weird concert with lights and smoke machines. Church or faith should outpour into real life and connection is the key. I haven't belonged to church in well over three years, and when I've gone somewhere, I feel physically ill. Pretty sure that's my spirit telling me to get out of there. Allie says, We have four paid, both sex, professionals, by which I believe she means they have paid professional pastors of both sexes, not that their church retains four paid sex professionals who rotate around our six intimate, approximately 100 to 150, including kids, congregations, plus members of each congregation team, plus mature members of the congregation, giving the short, refreshing, life-centered talk, but still with good biblical content, often with heckling and laughter or visual aids and interacting with the listeners. In the words of Marvin the Paranoid Android, It sounds awful. Sassy says, oh man, the church I'm at now, the sermons are so good. They're like 15 minutes, a pre-written essay, meditation that touches on scripture, incorporates history, literature, and philosophy, and is encouraging. They're like Goldilocks sermons. I must admit that does sound like something that would get exactly the same response from me as the three bears got from Goldilocks herself in the story of the same name. Norma, raised in our group but long gone, says, You are well-spoken and articulate, Mike. You have definitely put a lot of deep thought into expressing yourself in your songs and now podcasts. Congrats, my friend. Hey, that was a compliment. I almost felt that. This song had no bed track recorded yet when George was over to record drums for a few of the songs that have already played in the season of the podcast. So this is one of the ones that not wishing to disturb the drums or mic set up for George coming back in a few days, I unplugged the mic cable on a mic and, without adjusting the recording level at all, plugged that cable into a microphone in my office, this one, and sang a bed track to a click track into it with no clear picture of what the song would sound like. then plug the cable back into the drum mic just like before when I was done. George followed my direction for drums on this one, and I got happier and happier with the drum part the more like Neil Young drums it sounded. I've always liked that heartbeat kick sound. Eventually, I ended up using the take about which George ruefully said, I'm just ripping off Heart of Gold now. I don't hear it.
Like I said, this second last song was to be a bookend to the second song on the album. I got that idea from Neil Young's Rust Never Sleeps album, which has slightly differently worded, fairly different sounding versions of the same song starting and ending the album. What I did with mine was pretend that this was an entirely different, wholly unrelated song, though it's really just the end of the same one. I felt my way along with it, and rather than my usual thing of locking myself in a room with the song and coming out hours later having lost track of time, a version of the song being completed, I let it sit for weeks and weeks at a time, thinking about it and generally putting off working on it and greatly overthinking it. The thing about that is, you get an idea in your head of a sound you think would be really cool in the song, and then when you play it into the song, Either it adds something entirely new and enriching, just like you'd hoped, or maybe it just doesn't go at all. You have to try it. The key thing was I wanted to keep this version of the song as quiet and simple as possible, and to make it quite different from the loud version that was at the start of the album. This one. Let step shuffle past here. The one Troy described as really something. Um, I don't remember which one. It was, it was, like the, it was the no, no, no. It wasn't. It was your more epic one, the one with the the stops, like the heavy, heavy, heavy stops. I find I get bass guitar ideas for my songs playing in my head, but then I always go ahead and play simple strummy guitar first, which kind of determines what simple, simple bass part I'm going to then do that matches that. So this time. I did the bass part first, before the guitars, doing my best to lock it into the groove of the song that George had built into his drum part. Then I tried to layer some voices, trying this and that, trying to sing like Alice Cooper too much, then trying to maybe sing like him a bit less. Watch for teeth in darkness gleaming, hands that reach out to be fed. During a month of procrastinating working on this song, I rewatched the documentary Sound City with Dave Grohl of Nirvana after reading his autobiography and thought to myself that I've always liked that 90s style quiet loud, quiet loud thing in my songs. This is the part of the song that's really quiet. We play very soft. Sounds like a ballad And this is the part where we play real hard It's much louder than at the beginning And we go back to the quiet part And even if I wasn't going to bring in crashing, roaring, electric, distorted guitars on the choruses, I could add more energy for them. So I tried singing a pair of fairly shouty chorus vocal parts. Stay there long and all that droning. 
Rust the brains out of your head. And then I really tried to put some emotional chorus harmony vocals in, singing high enough on a couple of them to hurt. I didn't want to simply do falsetto for those for some reason, so I just shoved them out. Don't forget that you're alive. Go among them if you're haunted. With a light and something to keep them back. And perhaps you'll leave on Then I worked on putting down a textural, mellow electric guitar through my tube amp, strumming upward instead of downward, and using my fingertips instead of a pick. Then I did another one, with the fake organ pedal for my guitar with a pick and strumming down. Then I did a pair of the same thing, basically, with rakes on the Nashville Strung 6-string with the 6 12-string strings on it. I basically just layered a bunch of different guitar sounds doing more or less exactly the same thing in unison. Then I took samples of dead brethren men preaching, slowed down slightly to add mood, including a sample from a surprisingly horror movie-sounding story tape Charles Hayhoe told us, channeling his inner Vincent Price about wolves that were apparently vampiric and who were pursuing a family riding in a horse-drawn carriage. Those fierce, vicious wolves. for human blood. All that seemed to do the trick. Shuffle 
Devils are clawing after faces Ripping wet tongues out of heads Oh, God.